Hello from Spearfish, South Dakota. It's the Black Hills Information Security Podcast. This is the podcast version of our webcast, so some of the slides we might reference will be missing, but you can find the whole episode on our YouTube channel. This is Sorta Top Use Tools of 2018 with John Strand and Chris Brenton. Enjoy. So I want to say thank you so much for the kind of sort of topish tools from 2018 from BHIS. So I hate predictions. If you want a prediction, people are going to break into your network using winter 2019. They're going to break into your network using summer 2019 or the big one that we're seeing now as a password, right? They're going to use that as a password to break into your organization. Absolutely correct. Or they're going to do like winter 2019 exclamation point is what they're using now. There's my prediction for 2019. Establish good, strong passwords. So let's dive in. This is brought to you by Black Hills Information Security. We do network penetration tests, web application pen tests, red teams. If you need any of those, you should really give us a call. If you're worried, oh my gosh, we just need something really basic. We work with organizations just starting on implementing security controls all the way up to tearing devices apart and doing embedded device security assessments. So please send us an email, consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com and set up a meeting and we'd be happy to talk about what you need in your security assessments. It's also brought to you by Active Countermeasures AI Hunter. It's also brought to you by SAN Security 504, the absolute most phenomenal greatest computer security class in the world since Chris stopped teaching 502 for SANS a number of years ago. So I feel pretty good about saying that now that Chris is not teaching his class. By the way, Chris's class is actually the only SANS class I ever took. I took 502 and then I took on-demand kind of, I just got the books for 504. So Chris is the only SANS instructor I've ever sat in a class with, which I think is pretty cool. All right, so here we go. Why? Why, why are there so many great tools out there that get no love? The reason why is because we get so caught up in trying to learn the basic tools, the core tools, Nessus, Nmap, Metasploit, Burp, Bloodhound, PowerShell, Empire, all of these tools get a tremendous amount of press. They get all of the write-ups in the books, and they should. These tools are absolutely phenomenal. However, we find in our assessments that many organizations that have testing people within the organization, they tend to stop at that specific tool set and they never really develop or progress beyond those tools. And what that means is if Nessus doesn't tell them there's a vulnerability, they don't even look for that vulnerability. Vulnerability. If Metasploit doesn't have a module to exploit it, they don't even bother trying to exploit it. And that's a problem, right? While these tools are great, you need to be able to move beyond these specific tools and look at a whole plethora of additional tools that are out there for you for doing your own security assessments within your organization. There are tons and tons of different tools and different techniques that are out there and available to you. And this webcast is try to bring forth some of those additional tools. Now, if you're the author of a tool, I had someone that wrote a really cool web app crawling web vulnerability scanning tool that sent me a DM. I would have loved to have talked about your tool. Unfortunately, in this particular webcast, I'm going to be focusing on like network penetration testing. We'll have another one dealing with web app pen testing. And more importantly, we're going to have a full webcast of lesser known tools dealing with defensive. Like how can we use things like log analysis utilities, deep blue CLI? How can we do analysis on NetFlow traffic using Rita? 
and we're a little bit partial to that in using Zeek slash Bro for doing that type of analysis. How can we use Logon Tracer from JP Cert to do analysis of event IDs and so on? So that webcast is going to be coming up because they're lesser known tools that we want to bring to the forefront. So we want to bring those in. If we didn't get your favorite tool, I apologize. There's a lot of tools in this webcast. I'm going to move very, very, very quickly. I could literally write a seven-day class just on tools that are not Metasploit, Nessus, Nmap, Burp, and Bloodhound. So let's jump in. The first one actually isn't really a security tool at all. Uh, the first one that we're uh, talking about is AD Explorer. Now, this is a Microsoft utility. Now, the interesting thing about it being a Microsoft utility is it's created by SysInternals, and that means it's digitally signed by Microsoft. So you can pull down AD Explorer and you can run it, and it allows you to create an entire snapshot of your Active Directory environment. And if you have a standard user account, you can pull that down and you can start doing offline analysis or you can analyze it real time. Now that digitally signed executable is important because a lot of the endpoint security products that are out there today, they will look at who wrote the tool and they'll look at the digital signature of that executable and they will allow that executable to run because it is from a trusted source. So if we ever get access to an endpoint, we're doing an assumed compromise assessment or we're doing a red team, we get access to an endpoint workstation. One of the first things that you want to do is get better awareness of what the entire environment offers you. Where are the sensitive workstations? Where are the sensitive user accounts? Are there any passwords that are easily reversible? And it just so happens that AD Explorer does all of that. In addition to that, some organizations have very tight restrictions on what executables are allowed to be downloaded and executed regardless of where they came from. The cool thing about sysinternals, and, and I didn't know this, with sysinternals, you can actually put the UNC path into Explorer and you can do live.sysinternals.com and you can do forward slash tools. And as soon as you do that, it allows you to execute it from their systems on the internet, and it allows it to run directly into memory on the system that you're doing your assessment on. So even if you can't download and execute a particular executable, you can use AD Explorer from Microsoft's own repository. These tools for sysinternals are all available, and you can run them directly from Microsoft's website. This is huge because we don't have to worry about trying to bypass, download, and execute. We don't have to worry about any of that. It's just going to execute it from their servers, throw it right into memory. Now we can start searching. Now we get into huge arguments as far as what hacking actually is. And I keep coming back to that core kind of tenant of the second slide or fourth slide in this presentation, the first slide of the actual presentation. We are looking at non-standard utilities. Many people in this industry, in the pen test puppy mill industrial complex, they simply run the standard tool set. And they run the tool set not to understand the environment, but they're running that tool set to look for criticals and high vulnerabilities, and then specifically exploit those vulnerabilities and that's it. That's as far as they actually go. They're waiting on tools to tell them there's an exploitable condition. Two things about that. Number one, exploitable conditions like that are getting rarer and rarer and rarer in this industry. Finding a vulnerability in an application that is a remotely exploitable buffer overflow condition or a heap spraying overflow condition that you can get shell on a system 
is getting rarer and rarer. And that's a good thing. It's a very good thing for the industry that we are kind of solving that buffer overflow problem with things like address-based layout randomization. We've, uh, we've got canaries protecting the return pointer. We got data execution prevention. We have all of these different things that the operating systems are now providing to us that make that type of exploitation more difficult. However, we're still getting access to environments at just the same level of consistency and at the same rate that we were doing this a number of years ago. And the reason why is because we're treating our assessments not as running a scanning tool looking for criticals and highs, but trying to understand the environment that we are actually testing. And with AD Explorer, it gives us that ability to actually do that type of assessment to learn about the organization. So one of the cooler features about this is you can actually do a full snapshot and archive the active directory database to a local dat file and then you can do all your analysis offline and that's great for a wide variety of reasons you copy it off you can start messing around with it and looking at it that reduces the overall likelihood that you're going to crash the domain controller so copying it off and doing this analysis offline is very very powerful now some of the things you can do is you can hunt for administrators we can start looking for members in the administrators group built-in administrators backup operators and sometimes different organizations have different names or organizational units or groups that they have created associated with administrators or a certain level of workstations and service accounts and so on this allows you to drill in and actually identify those specific accounts now, in addition to administrators, you can also look for different groups associated with things like accounting or developers. You would use this to try to further your access to create a very customized spear phishing campaign targeting those specific individuals. Hunting for passwords. Uh, Chris, this is the one that I wanted you to see. So hunting for passwords. With AD Explorer, you can look for attributes such as Unix user password, and it says it's not empty. And in the screenshot up above, both of these users have the exact same passwords, and they decode into A, B, C, D, exclamation point, E, F, G, 1, 2, 3. It's basically a long password. And that password is just simply, it's just encoded ASCII. That's it. It's, it's not Landman, it's, it's not NT, it's just straight up stored ASCII. And you use man ASCII and congratulations, you've got man ASCII as your password cracker. Now we use this, this is actually from a blog post that Sally did, Black Hills Information Security. And it's interesting because we see this quite a bit in a number of our assessments. So the point of this is your vulnerability assessment scanner is not going to find something like this. It's not going to identify these particular passwords that are incredibly weak and would allow someone to get full domain administrator very quickly. So we have to start thinking beyond what we actually do see with the scan results that we're actually receiving as well. All right, so we've got a couple of questions. Oh, go ahead. So Chris is just telling me it's not that bad. It has special characters as well. Also, David Fletcher was pointing out a tremendous number of things. He loves to use AD Explorer. And he also says you can look for user password. You can use ms-mc-admin-pwd, comments, and then also you can search for Oracle accounts as well. And the Unix password in AD, a normal attribute, and what a situation does that actually occur in? There's a lot of scenarios where you don't know why the hell Microsoft turned this on. We're going to talk about link local multicast name resolution again a little bit later, and you have to wonder why it actually exists. Thomas pointed out that you can hear Chris and CJ on the audio, and you absolutely can. The reason why I'm repeating their questions, and I apologize for that, is the recording archive that's going to go up on YouTube 
actually will not have their audio. So we're going to get that set up as well. Don asked me if I got the signed autographed next version of his blue team handbook. I absolutely did. Thank you so much, Don. I appreciate it. And does AD Explorer generate an event ID on the domain controller? David, if you can tell me exactly what the event ID is, I believe it does. I wonder if you're actually querying that, but it depends on what level of logging you have enabled on your domain controller. All right, so that's it for the questions associated with AD Explorer. If you have some more, please type them in. All right, so let's talk about PowerShell. So PowerShell is one of those tools that has been working far longer in security assessments than I thought it would ever work in security assessments. It's the absolute most heavily used language right now for red teams. Because with PowerShell, it gets you direct access to the .NET framework. We're gonna talk a little bit more about how we can go to the .NET framework in a different way using C Sharp. But the point is, it gives you unparalleled power, unparalleled scripting ability. It is a full-fledged language. It's, you know, like if you think of something like Python or Perl, if you're, if you're old, um, it gives you that capability, right? And that's great. But what we're starting to see is a lot of organizations that are starting to clamp down on execution from PowerShell directly. So they won't allow you to execute PowerShell.exe. I'll talk about it in another way to get around it a little bit later. But if you actually create a C-sharp executable, it allows you to make that direct call and that direct access into the .NET framework underneath the hood. And then you can start interacting with the system the way that you would normally want to. So this PowerOps from FDiskU, which by the way, I can't say FDiskU without giggling a little bit inside because I just think that that's hilarious. It includes a lot of the modules that we use all the time in our security assessments, like Mimikatz, DLL injection, token manipulation, PowerUp, PowerView, Nishang, Invoke PS Exec, PowerUp SQL, and so much more. And you should definitely go check out the GitHub page because there's a lot that I'm not talking about with this, but it is one of our go-to tools post-exploitation where we are actually run these tools if PowerShell is not directly available to us and we want to run things like Mimikatz to pull clear text passwords. We want to inject a malicious dynamic link library and get another kind of backdoor setup with that particular system. And the amount of work that FDiskU has put in has just been fantastic. Please do me a favor, go out and follow him or her, I think it's him, on Twitter and check out their GitHub repository. It's great. So what are the things that are available? You can see the Nishang framework. You can get information, get password hashes, and run a port scan. PowerSploit. You can run keystroke logging, invoke shellcode, PowerView, DLL injection, PowerUp. I'm going to talk about that one here in just a couple of seconds. Invoke Mimikatz, invoke WMI. I'm going to talk about WMI and Chris Truncer's work here in just a couple of seconds. Just a really, really, really cool set of tools that are available. Invoke SSH command, invoke PowerShell execute, or PS execute, sorry. And then also automatically look for things like group policy preference file passwords, invoke SMB auto brute force, invoke Mimikatz, invoke PowerCat, which is a PowerShell backdoor the first iteration of that backdoor, I believe, was created by Mick Douglas, and then also PowerUp SQL, which is great. And then if we look at the PowerUp module, what are the number of ways that we can try to get like elevated privileges on this particular computer system? So you can see that we have a lot more commands. Looking for path hijacking, DLL hijacking, modifiable files. There's also modifiable directories. In a lot of tests, you'll have the Windows directory, the System32 directories, and you'll run into a problem where that entire directory for a specific service or a program is writable. And then you can inject malicious dynamic link libraries, reboot the computer system and when that service starts, it executes your malware in addition or in lieu 
of that particular service. So there's a lot of ways to actually get privilege escalation on a computer system. Um, auto run task, schedule task abuse. I believe the schedule task abuse was used by Conficker. You're also going to see like link layouts. There's a bunch of them that are available here. But these are the ways that you go from a standard user on a system to elevate your privileges all the way up to system level privileges or administrator level privileges on that computer. Once again, your standard vulnerability assessment scanners do a very poor job of finding these particular vulnerabilities. And it isn't really the fault of any of these vulnerability assessment scanners so much as it's just kind of the way it works, right? The scanners were designed to look for misconfigurations and they were designed to find vulnerabilities that existed in programs, things like buffer overflows, misconfigurations, things of that nature. They weren't really designed to go through and do full configuration and audit checks on those workstations. Now, to be fair, some vulnerability assessment scanning engines do in fact have that capability where you can actually put in a configuration scan profile and it'll check it against configuration best practices. But in my history of working with those configuration checks, they're very spotty, they're very hit or miss, and they tend to implement something like the CIS benchmarks and then stop. And they don't ever really update and look for additional vulnerabilities that can exist on systems. Additional power-ups, had to throw a shout-out to Mimikatz. Ben and all of his work that he's been doing, Gentle Kiwi on Twitter, is just fantastic. He is the only person I have ever seen in my entire life give his presentation in his underwear. Did that at DerbyCon last year. And I know some people are like, that's been done before. It was done by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. This is true. But there's a big difference between rocking it out at something like, you know, Woodstock 2 or doing a computer security conference in his underwear, which just, you know, the guy blows my mind, not just for the underwear thing, but also all the work that he does on Mimikatz. Also, if you want to play around, there's a really cool feature in Mimikatz that will allow you to suspend the event log was cleared event ID. So whenever you clear an event log, the events on Windows will actually generate an event log that says the event log was cleared. You can actually do that log and basically pause that logging service. So if you do clear the event logs, it'll suspend that event log from being written which is pretty cool. Very similar to the stuff that you see with like the vault breach, the shadow brokers breach that the NSA and the United States government, I should put that in quotes, has been attributed to using. So please check that out as well. All right, next up is Powerline. Now, kind of building off of the stuff that we were just talking about with PowerOps, with Powerline, it's a little bit different. It's very, very, very similar, but it's also a little bit different, okay? So with this, you can take PowerShell and look at it as a front end for .NET. You can look at C Sharp as a front end for .NET. So you can use systems management automation, and you can load PowerShell within C. Now, what we want to do is answer the question, how do I execute additional PowerShell utilities that haven't been ported over to C Sharp. Like PowerOps has ported over a lot of these different programs. So how do we actually do full execution of those programs like, let's say, Bloodhound, let's say Empire, let's say Metasploit. And PowerLine allows you to do that. So with PowerLine, and this is by Full Metal Cash or Brian Furman, at Black Hills Information Security, and you guys should check it out, you can use PowerLine to execute those additional PowerShell, PowerShell scripts that you may actually be restricted from using, and it basically invokes them through standard C Sharp. So very, very cool utility, and it's one of those utilities that we use at BHIS 
all the time. So when you're looking at power ops, you're looking at power line, it's almost, I would say every other day, at least one of our testers are on an assessment and they say, oops, they, they blocked PowerShell. Now we're going to simply run this utility, run it through PowerLine, or we're going to run PowerOps and run it through that instead of actually invoking PowerShell.exe. And there's also some additional tools out there like Sharpound. There's a whole framework from SpectreOps, who I'm going to talk about more here a little bit later. Just some fantastic utilities that are available. It's more about finding a whole collection of different tools than just focusing on one specific tool and that being the only tool that you ever use. And that gets to kind of a crux of a problem that I see in many assessments. Many assessments, going back to the beginning of the tools that are used all the time, like Nessus and Nmap and so on, they'll get stuck on those tools or they'll get stuck on something like PowerOps and that's all that they know how to use and then they'll get caught. Like some security product will actually just stop it. Okay, that's, that's a bummer, right? But as a tester, whether you're doing your own internal security assessments against something like the MITRE attack techniques matrix, or you're a third-party penetration tester, you really shouldn't get stopped there. It is very disappointing to me whenever I see people try something and they only go one layer deep and then they're done. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it right. Check like four or five different things. And odds are, you're going to find at least one of them that works. And that's the bizarre thing about what's going on with PowerShell. They're slowly starting to lock it down. Somebody just popped up and said, uh, what is it, Silence? I think it's already been answered. But does Silence stop this? And yes and no. The standard PowerShell execution, it does. But a number of tricks that you can do, including the ones that are here, can be used to bypass products like Silence, like CrowdStrike, like Carbon Black, especially if they're not in high enforcement mode. And we'll talk more about that whenever we get to the sacred cash cow tipping as well. All right, so WMI. Uh, if you guys could do me all a solid favor, one of the things that I absolutely love about BHIS and what we do whenever we're working with people is I absolutely love how everybody in this company throws shout outs to the other companies that we work with. And Chris has just started up his own company, 40 North Security. He started it earlier this summer, been a subcontractor with Black Hills Information Security. And we have nothing but love for Chris. He started up another computer security testing company, 40 North Security. So if you all could do me a big solid favor, go out on Twitter and follow at 40 North Sec, please. And just kind of let him know this is kind of be his official welcome to the community. Let's see if we can kick up his followers a little bit on his new company. So wish him the absolute best of luck. When we see new firms like Trusted Sec and Inguardians and Specter Ops and Core um, Deviant Olman and all the stuff that he does and Secure Ideas and Rendition InfoSec. And I know I'm forgetting some additional security firms that are just fantastic. So I apologize. But when we see this, Vince Liu is another great one. When we start seeing these companies and we start seeing people that are doing things correctly, it is an important thing for us in this industry. And the reason why it's important for us is because the more good security firms that are actually out there, the more we can define what a good penetration test is. I've done crappy pen tests. I have done pen test puppy mill stuff in the past. It sucks. It doesn't provide value to customers and we need to keep that commitment to quality high. And every time we lose a firm that is a good firm, then it moves that entire definition of what a pen test is to a crappier and crappier and crappier definition. So hats off to 40 North Sec and welcome them to the community. So WMI Implant. Chris does a tremendous amount of work via WMI. In fact, he does some training. Black Hills Information Security is going to be hiring him 
I think we already have the contract paid for, but in January, February timeframe, we're going to send through all of our testers to work with them. He did a fantastic workshop at Wild West Hackenfest last year, and we're going to invite him back again. But he uses WMI. So the standard stuff that you normally can do, he has created a full C2 framework and allows you to interact with the file system shells, processes, reboot a system, IP config, active users, upload and download files, execute files. And also for lateral movement, you can enable WinRM. There's really a lot that you can do. And he, I think his workshop was what, three hours at Wild West Hackenfest? Or were they two hour workshops? The point is I'm not doing it justice because he has like a two to three hour workshop dedicated to using offensive WMI. So please check that out as well. All right. So PowerShell restriction bypass, we were talking about this a little while ago, and this is kind of a bit frustrating. So, Chris, I honestly feel like every time we take a step forward, we end up taking a step backwards as well. And that's hard. And with the stuff that we did with Silence a couple of years ago for bypassing Silence, David was able to bypass Silence simply by just renaming PowerShell.exe to Explorer.exe, and it worked. And we just had that happen in another assessment where we could take PowerShell.exe, try to execute it. We generated the alert that you see in the middle box. But simply renaming it to P.exe allowed it to execute with no problems at all. And this is frustrating. It is absolutely frustrating because why, <laughs> why does this still happen? And it would be easy for us to rip on vendors, right? It would be easy for us to rip on Silence. It would be easy to rip on Carbon Black. And I don't really fault Carbon Black too much on this one, and there's a lot more to that. But the core problem that we have is if you're writing an EDR, if you're writing a next, next, next generation endpoint security product that's using things like artificial intelligence to make determinations as to whether or not a program is malicious or not, you have to be very careful because an adversary can take a good executable, chop it up, combine it with bad executables, and eventually train the artificial intelligence algorithm to start wiping out known good executables. So what you see is a lot of the vendors are trying to prevent that from happening at all costs. So they'll use things like digital certificates, they'll use things like name, they'll use things like hash, and they'll create like these databases saying these are the trusted attributes of programs. And if you can just get a little bit off the shiny, happy path, just a hair, it becomes a more trusted executable than a less trusted executable. So I hate to say that I kind of feel for these endpoint security vendors, but I kind of feel for these endpoint security vendors as well. So that's kind of frustrating. And what sucks is I'm now seeing people that are seeing the same type of thing. And then also David pointed out that it typically depends on the organization's configuration. And that's absolutely true. That also goes into the high enforcement mode. So a lot of these products can run in full application whitelisting. Go ahead. Concept. When everybody else was saying, if it's on a blacklist, I'll grab it. They were actually, you know, checking digital certificates and checking hashes and, you know, kind of doing the do. Um, yeah. It, 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 you're right. It's kind of sad when you see something this obvious get missed. Well, and it just kind of, and I also think it underscores the overall complexity of what they're actually trying to do. And it's also why I think we've talked about this extensively, why we're staying the hell out of the endpoint security market. Because it's, yeah. it's complicated, it's hard, and there's a lot of companies that are actually in that space. All right, so password spring. So this is my third presentation 
I've talked about password spraying and using things like turning existing services like Amazon Lambda against other cloud-based services. And this gets to a much larger issue that we're going to be dealing in computer security moving forward. So traditionally, if you try to do password spraying against Office 365 or Google Apps, you're going to get caught very quickly and they're going to blacklist your IP address. That is just going to happen, expected, if you're trying to do an assessment. So Bull Bullock and You Stay Ready, or Mike Felch, they basically developed a tool predominantly written by You Stay Ready called CredKing. And what CredKing does is allows you to do your full password spray from Amazon Lambda against Google. And this is interesting for a wide variety of reasons. One, I'm pretty darn sure that this is actually a violation of terms of service. I'm pretty sure about that because Google has sent us basic documentation saying it's a violation of their terms of service. We shot back, what exactly are we violating? And they couldn't answer that question because we're doing legitimate tests against their customers who are hiring us to evaluate their security. And we can't just ignore this because if somebody's using a password of spring 2018 or winter 2019, the organization needs to know that. But what you're seeing at the moment is these very large companies are becoming more and more like Oracle. They're, and I'm sorry to rip on Oracle, but it's, but it's true. So Oracle is basically saying you can't and you shouldn't test any of our products because we hire the best security engineers on the face of the planet, and there's nothing that you can find in our product that we haven't found before, which is crap. <laughs> it's unbreakable, right? Unbreakable. So with this in mind, we run into a massive problem where there's large chunks of cloud infrastructure that are not being tested at all. I'm not necessarily talking about the infrastructure that people are writing. I'm talking about the infrastructure that those tools write on top of. Things like Kinexis, things like if you're using Redis, things like, uh, what is it, Google Cloud, where you can run Golang inside of Google Cloud and so on. The vendors are saying, don't test it ever. Trust us, everything is good. But what we found is traditionally, whenever a large company says, trust us, whether it be Microsoft, whether it be Oracle, whether it be Google, it's almost always for the worst in the entire industry. They may have fantastic security today, but over time, well, it tends to go down. So this is a fantastic utility that we use for basically doing password spraying where we turn one cloud vendor against another because they tend not to actually block those IP addresses associated with their competitor because they are a little bit nervous about actually breaking the entire infrastructure for one of their customers. Let's talk a little bit about personalized phishing. This is talking about Cred Sniper. Once again, this is the second time I've talked about, a third time I've talked about, I talked about it at Wild West, not Wild West Hacking, I talked about Hackenfest uh, from SANS, and I also talked about it at the webcast that I did a few days ago for like 75 people SANS had as well. So the question becomes, if organizations start getting better at security and they start requiring two-factor authentication in absolutely everything, how do you break into those organizations? And then this also ties into the previous slide and the FUD that is generated by these cloud vendors. There was a report, Chris, I don't know if you remember reading this, but there was a report that came out, I want to say a few months ago, where Google said that enabling two-factor authentication basically dropped email compromises down to zero. And that was unnerving for us because that is not at all the truth of the situation 
that we're seeing. So we've developed this framework specifically to get around two-factor authentication. I'm going to talk about some other frameworks as well. This goes a little bit further. CredSniper actually goes just a hair further, and it also allows you to pull in a custom image for Google Picasa API and ask for their passwords. And then it also will automatically generate a app password that you can continue to access their email and their files and everything as well. So it is a fantastic utility. So pretty please check it out. It is a little bit more complicated, I think, than a lot of the traditional phishing tools out there, like just generate an HTA file and then get malware on those systems as well. Ron just brought up a great point. Ron just said, these organizations would rather have bad guys perform these generous attacks and not the good guys in their internal staff. And that's the attitude we need to be at, right? Unfortunately, a lot of these large vendors don't listen to us when we're screaming very loudly that we in fact have a problem. Next one, searching email. So Mail Sniper took off and it's weird whenever somebody like Bo writes a tool and it explodes. Like Mail Sniper, the ability to bypass two-factor authentication and OA two-factor authentication to access, basically access that back end through EWS. It, it's interesting to me that people get hung up on that one component and they use it for just that thing. Like that's it. That's all that they do. They're just going to use it to bypass two-factor authentication. There's more to it than that. So once again, if we're looking at the current security landscape that is improving, especially in EDR, the endpoint space, uh, for the organizations that are taking that leap to Carbon Black, CrowdStrike, Silence, Endgame, and so on, when we see organizations that take that step, a lot of stuff is being watched from the log files on systems to the processes that are executing, that there are still pathways where you can identify and pull down sensitive data out of that organization that you wouldn't normally find on a file share. And that's the feature of MailSniper whenever Bo showed it to me that I got the most excited about, but people didn't really glom onto that as much as they should. So MailSniper has the ability to actually search for certain phrases and files. Like you could search for password and then you can download and zip all of them. VPN, confidential, credit card keywords, AWS secret keys. MailSniper gives you this ability. Also, in addition to that, MailSniper has the ability to search through the entire global address list and look for over-provisioned email accounts. So if a CEO or a CFO, they basically say, I'm going to have my secretary manage my inbox for me. They'll delegate the management of their inbox to their secretary. And many times this is something that person has to do. The easiest way for them to do that, the most insecure way to do that, is to basically make it so that everyone has access to their email. So they're severely over-delegated inboxes. So MailSniper has the ability to actually search for those specific e email accounts that are way too over-provisioned, and then you gain access to their emails as well. So using this, our assessments, we find things like, passwords. We find things like confidential documents. We find credit cards. We find keys. We find LastPass databases that have been exported. We find Excel spreadsheets that are filled with all their passwords for their SCADA ICS environment. And this is nice because as of right now, this allows you to bypass a lot of those traditional detection utilities and what they're looking for, because very few of them are actually looking at email and what email actually does. Got a couple of questions here. Can MailSniper read emails that have been encrypted? No, it cannot read encrypted emails. We need those keys. Ask John Podesta about email over-provisioning. Now, I'm going to defend Mr. Podesta here. I don't want to get into the politics, but what the hell? Let's do it. I don't blame John Podesta at all for what happened. 
If you remember the whole story with John Podesta, John Podesta's email got compromised because someone fished him, a Russian fished him, and said, hey, you need to reset your Google account password. Please click this link. He didn't click that link. He sent it to an administrator slash security person and said, is this legit? And his administrator slash security person said, yes, it is. You should click that. So I don't really fault him all that much about it as well. Also, Will Burgess's talk, Aldo West Hacking Fest. Bree, can we get that link for Jim and share that with everybody? Talked about red teaming in the EDR age as well. Does this work with O365? Matt asked. Yes, it does support with O365 as well. It was a security person in Russian, Rob asked, which is awesome. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. That's great. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Keep those conspiracy theories going as much as possible. So that's that's just fantastic. All right, so more fishing fun. Evil Gen X, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, makes standing up an entire template phishing site so incredibly easy to do. It's just stupid. You basically fire it up, do P, you give it to fishlets for the profiles and the templates, and away you go. It just makes it really simple. And it does also do that interception of the two-factor authentication. We do two-factor authentication kind of sidestepping a little bit different than Evil Gen X does. But these are both tools that are in your suite of tools that you can actually use. So check them out. Now let's talk about getting domains. There's been a lot of research in this topic and SpectreOps has just done a fantastic job on this. So big shout out to SpectreOps. Unfortunately, SpectreOps has a webcast at the exact same time as this webcast. So we had a lot of people that had to choose between SpectreOps and us. And I'm pretty sure that SpectreOps is recording their webcast. We're recording our webcast. So you get an awesome webcast for Bloodhound. Nothing but love for what they've been doing out there. So buying an existing and expired domain, so much better for trying to set up phishing and command and control out of an environment than trying to create a brand new domain and then have that domain all of a sudden become trusted. And what you do is you basically watch expired domains, site expired domains, and then you can see an expired domain that comes up for sale and you can see if it's categorized. And if it's categorized and people are blocking uncategorized sites, they're using a whitelist approach for the internet instead of a blacklist approach. It allows you to get out of that environment using a domain that has been categorized previously. So some of the ones that you've seen in our webcast would be St. James Church. St. James Church was a church down in Brazil. They went out of business. Their domain was categorized religious. We bought it and we used it as a command and control. You also saw yourescape.net, which was a travel website for a travel company. And that website as well, that website was used for a travel company. They went out of business. We purchased it. And since it was already categorized, we were able to use that as a domain to get out of an environment as well. So yes, there's tons of different tools out there that allow you to do this. Threat Express, Joe Vest, who's a SAN instructor, works at SpectreOps, did a great job on Domain Hunter. Our own Brian Furman created the Domain Gain tool, and we'll, we'll talk about that here in a couple of seconds. And SpectreOps did a fantastic blog post on not just finding these domains, but how do you actually manage these domains as well. So here's domain gain, and I wanted to show you how easy it is to use and what we're actually looking for. So you will need some 
uh, API keys for this. So whenever you look inside the code, you're going to have to insert some API keys, and you'll see why here in just a couple of seconds. So you run Python domain gain.py, and this is Brian's tool, Full Metal Cache, pulls a full list of expired domains, gets domains, sorts them by URL, sorts them by SIM web score, sorts them by ACR score, and then at the very end, it says we got 498 recently expired domains, checks the categorization for these domains, and then pops this out. So it said, I found 50 domains that have good categorization and are available. Here's the list of available domains and what's its categorization and how much does it cost. So with this, you've got warrantnavi.net, brokerage trading. You have oregoncityparks.org, this is government legal. R-I-L-K-E.org is entertainment. So you have all of these different domains that are categorized and then the cost associated with them. Also, Jim just popped up Will's talk from Spectre Ops in fuzzy sec. Could you guys please copy that and paste that back out? Oh, by the way, the Spectre Ops blog post is right here. So if you want to take a quick screenshot, Ray. Now, like I said, we try to keep it very, very convenient. David just said this tool is very easy to use. We try to keep it really dead simple to use. Like how much does it cost? What is it categorized? And away you go. The next tool that we want to talk about, we really have talked about this. I, I, I almost didn't put it in this particular session because it isn't a lesser known tool. Responder has been around for a while. People use it all the time. It is constantly, constantly being talked about in almost any report that I look at for my testers. And I want to discuss this a little bit as to why this is a problem, why we need to talk about it, and why we need to do something about it. So on computer systems, Windows computer systems, you have link local multicast name resolution, and you have NetBIOS name service and DNS and MDNS. And the problem with these, especially for LOMNR and NetBIOS name service, is it allows a Windows system to broadcast out requests to resolve domains that didn't resolve in your standard DNS lookup. And that is a problem. It's taking unsolicited advice from any system that is willing to respond back with an answer. So this is straight out of SANS 504. A responder, you give it an Ethernet interface, you give it the poisoned IP address. So as soon as somebody tries to look up something like hello 504, it's going to redirect them to 10.10.75.1. And then this is what this looks like. And you'll intercept that net NTLM v2 password hash, and then you can crack it in tools like John the Ripper or Hashcat or any password cracking tools as well. So fantastic. Now, why the hell are we still talking about this? This should be disabled in all of your environments. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why in the hell this was still working. And I discovered that there was a trend in our pen test reports that many of the systems that we found that were using LLM and R and we could attack with Responder were actually administrator systems, disproportionately so. They were administrators' computer systems. So I started asking some of the customers and some of the people that we're working with, why the hell was this on on an admin system? And what I discovered was most users get an image. That image is associated with a group policy. And it says all of these services are running and all these services are off. Life's good. Image works. The user gets it. It's more or less secure. And it comes out that way. It's at least tried to be secure, right? Okay, everything's fine. However, with administrators, security administrators, network administrators, systems administrators, they're the people in your organization that are most likely to grab an ISO associated with Windows, plug that into a fresh system, and build their administrator system from scratch. Only install the applications that they need. Don't install the extra crop because it closes, slows their system down. But because they actually go through and 
build that system from scratch, this is now turned on by default. So that's why our systems administrators, security administrators, and so many people in our organizations are so poor whenever it comes to this particular security practice. So just somebody just popped up and said, hey, we got to get back to a group policy on administrator systems. Absolutely. That would be just absolutely fantastic as well. Somebody said they just ran into a, a honeypot that was running LLMNR requests and alerted when somebody ran it, uh, trying to use Invey. Also with that, we actually created the CRED Defense Toolkit. If Matthew, if you could talk, just let us know if it was CRED Defense Toolkit or was it a commercial tool? I okay, so it was a TiVo. Very, very cool. So a TiVo and also Elusive are two really cool cyber deception companies that are out there that you all need to look into. So some really cool utilities out there as well. All right. So with that, I wanted to see if there was any questions. I always try to leave the last 10 minutes associated with questions. So the first one that we got, does Windows block LLMNR by default? It depends. If you're at a coffee shop and it's a non-trusted network, it will actually block link local multicast name resolution responses that are coming back. So it'll actually shut that down. However, many of the organizations that we're testing, they're internal domain join systems. So it's, the firewall is almost off all the time as well. We got container-based domain admin tools running on standard build laptops. I love that. Anytime you can use containers or you can use jump hosts and you can restrict where those administrator utilities are actually executing from, better off absolutely everyone is going to be. So please, please, please check that out. I've been in several companies detecting responder usage. Yeah, we've been seeing it a lot more lately, but it still gets back to why is this, like, remember, responder will only respond if it sees an LLMNR request. We got to get back to that core principle of why the hell is the service even on on our systems? And you could just go through and query your entire environment and shut that off as well. And Nathan does security assessments and he knows really, really, really well. You could set up a Wi-Fi hotspot. Oh my God, Jim, great point. So Jim just brought up with Responder, you can set up a Wi-Fi hotspot and then you can basically have it join that Wi-Fi hotspot. If you get a kiosk machine on Windows 10 in the lower right-hand corner, if you have a kiosk machine, if you can lock the kiosk machine, it'll allow you to join a wireless network without having any privileges or anything authenticated to that system at all. And then you can have Responder waiting on the other side of that kiosk system as well. Would you recommend any specific tools to get into domain from a non-domain joined system if Responder didn't work? So there's a couple of things that you can do. This is going to sound really goofy, Joseph. One of the things you can do is just try to join your Windows system to the domain. We've had a couple of assessments that Sally was the first that actually came upon this and she's been using it to great effect. What happened is you could join a system to the domain without having a user. That's all usually on some legacy server 2008 domains, but you can try joining that as well. So also, if you're trying to get on a domain, you can actually do a lot of password spraying against the domain as well. So look if they're running anything like Office 365 and you can do password spraying against that. We have blog posts on that and you would use Burp. You need to make sure that Burp is configured to handle redirects properly. And then you can actually do your password spraying and user ID enumeration. If they have two-factor authentication, you're still going to have to get around that as well. Does non-agent-based SIM capture LLM and our request? Most of the time it does not. Responder failed to work on my Microsoft Hyper-V lab. That's probably because that service is disabled on all of your systems that are in your Hyper-V lab, number one, or number two, you didn't actually put in a request for a non-responsive domain or system. So if you go here, 
you can see the server that I was asking for in the screenshot was hello, 504. Try it when you're practicing with Responder. Try to put in a share, mount a share to a non-existent system. That's where Responder is going to shine really, really well. What about add-in spoofing like the blog post? Are you using that in test? I haven't read his blog post yet, or if I did, I haven't attributed it to his name yet. So sorry, I can't answer that. Will I be at B-Sides Orlando in 2019? That is very, very, very much in the air at the moment, but something that we're looking into. I've got a bunch of things that I've got to figure out between now and mid-January about my travel schedule and what I'm going to do. But I will be down at Sands Orlando as of right now. And B-Sides Orlando is usually right around that. Important note, and this is a great point, Junid and Asari, um, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, but this is a great point. I said LLM and R queries are limited to the local broadcast domain. That is very true. It is a layer two protocol. It does not jump outside of that particular VLAN or that switch. Can you TA my class in Zurich? Yeah, absolutely. Put in the request, go to SANS volunteer, just Google search SANS work study or SANS volunteer and then put in the request. Uh, if the passwords are hard to crack, you can sometimes relay re the responder hashes. Yes, that depends on a lot of configurations. And then talking about that type of SMB relaying and signing, we'll talk in another webcast about tools like CrackMap Exec and some other tools as well. Uh, uh, are there any books about this? That's kind of the reason why I did this webcast. A lot of these tools are not discussed as much as they should be. And the closest book that I would recommend is the Red Team Field Manual. It doesn't go into detail about what the tools do and how they work. It's basically a lot of man pages and example usage for these tools. So please check out RTFM. How do you decode the password in Active Directory using AD Explorer? If the password is in ASCII, you just convert it out of, just convert it to standard ASCII. So like a four zero is a capital B, four one is capital C and so on. You just use man ASCII and then do a conversion on the hex code. B-Sides Amsterdam, if you guys invite me to B-Sides Amsterdam, there's a very strong possibility that I'll be there. I will absolutely be there. How to get around Cisco's private VLAN. Uh, if you're using something like Cisco ICE or network access control, there's a number of different tools and utilities that you can use to bypass that. A lot of them actually deal with MAC address cloning and basically trying to get around that. But a lot of the newer network access control tools like Forescout, Cisco ICE are a little bit smarter than just MAC address. So you have to play around with things like user agent strings and your fingerprint for your TCP IP protocol stack. So there's tools out there like OSFuscate where you can modify your protocol stack of your system to match something else. So if you have something like a voice over IP phone, you can get that MAC address, find out what the underlying operating system, do some fingerprinting on that device, and then you can change the fingerprint, your TCP IP stack fingerprint on your system to match that as well. Does PowerLine bypass PowerShell event logging? I don't know, Mike. I think it does because it's not actually going through PowerShell at all. It's going straight from C-sharp into .NET. Downgrade attacks as well. You can definitely do downgrade attacks. And tools like Kane Enable allow you to downgrade to NTLM v v1, which is just like Landman authentication. It's just it uses the NT password hash. It doesn't have timestamps and things like that. Active Directory for pen testers. We submitted a Black Hat class. A couple of my employees, Jordan and Kent, who you've been on webcast, you've seen us talk about these tools. They've actually submitted an entire class on that topic. So we'll be seeing that. Wi-Fi is evil. We'll miss you. I don't know about that. I don't know where I'm going to be right here as well. All right. So that's it, everybody. I want to say thank you very much for attending this webcast. I really do appreciate it. it I'm constantly 
like humbled by the people that show up. This was by far and away, not by far and away, it's our largest webcast by about two, 300 people. And we keep growing and I really do appreciate it. And it, it, it means a lot to all of us that you guys keep showing up and you guys keep allowing us to do what we do. And thank you very much for coming, Chris. Thank you very much for coming, CJ. And we will see you all next week where Bo and Mike are going to be talking about malicious manifest.xml files and some Azure Active Directory recon external. So thanks again. Talk to you all later. Thanks for listening to the Black Hills Information Security Podcast. Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, to leave a positive review. No, 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 we're cool. We could be hip. Look at us, John. We're rad. It's like, oh, no.